coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Viacom's leaky S3 buckets almost exposed their entire IT infrastructure. Distrustful U.S. allies force yet more delays in the NSA's upcoming crypto standards. We've got yet more Equifax mishaps. And some government spyware that might just be masquerading as your favorite app. Plus, we've got your feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 338 for September 26th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three fantastic sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me back from yet another adventure is our favorite, Dan. And it looks like you're looking great today, Dan. Not only a new t-shirt, but just the best darn video I've ever seen. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to Rekind Chris for getting the video problems sorted out. Uh, wonderful to have you back, and you're looking great. Uh, how how were your adventures? Uh, it, it was good. Well, since our last taping, I've been to the office down in Maryland, uh, and I've been to Paris for 10 days or so. And the best thing I got from Ooh. Paris was this T-shirt, which we'll show off later. Um, but in, in my travels, I also acquired one of these thingies. Now, now it doesn't look like much. That is a temperature probe. It basically sits in your rack and gets plugged into the back of the computer. And this one is specifically for a Dell R710. Oh, interesting. Okay. And uh, That does sound pretty handy. So does it just... Uh, oh, it looks like we've got a frozen Dan here, everybody. Oh, you're back. Am I freezing again? Okay, uh, okay. I think we've pulled through it. Okay, good. And then I have this, which is for another 32-inch monitor. Oh, awesome. So Wait. this one's going to be mounted vertically. The other one's going to be remain horizontal. Do you have plans and, for what's going to go on there already? Um, code. Ah. So I, I'll, I'll just have – I'm going to have to move everything slightly sideways. Mm-hmm. I now have a, a monitor. Sorry, my laptop is mounted here. I think it's going to be closed and just put into a, a docking station maybe. And then I have monitor arms that are going to hold this one and that one. And it's going to be vertical here with probably browsers and code there. And over here is where I'll do most of my typing. And this will just be referential stuff over here. But we'll see how that goes. And the two R410s, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them yet, but... Hopefully, they'll be quiet enough. Hey, that's a really good problem to have. I'm just a bit jealous there. That's exciting, though. Uh, anything it else is, before we jump is. into this excellent show oh, we've got prepared? Um, you probably want to see this T-shirt. Yeah, FreeBSD Dev Summit. We spent two, we spent, um, two days working at uh, Mozilla headquarters in, in Paris. Uh, it is in a former Austrian embassy i think it dates from the 1630s if you check my non-techsnap twitter feed you'll see photographs of it and um it's rumored that marie antoinette was having an affair with the uh austrian ambassador at some time and oh. so it's it's therefore assumed that she slept there at some time and but we were there for two days we had a great time uh, lots of work got done, uh, oh, and that's I, the best. yes, and I I made some uh, changes to fresh ports that are that are checked in on my local workstation. But it's better stuff for package uh, package P list, mm. so that should be coming out in the next week or so. Hey. So all in all, it was a good time. Wonderful food, great walking around. Um, we walked about ten miles on the Sunday. Oh. Uh, okay, that sounds down, awesome. Walked down to the catacombs, went through them, then walked back. Everywhere we wanted to go walk, we you could, could walk. Go. You could just get right there. And say, okay, do you want to stop here and have a beer? Okay, sure. Which one? Why this not? one, that one, or that one? And yeah. Oh, it, Dan, it was, that sounds marvelous. Yeah, it was. Uh, anyway, excellent. we're back to reality now. That's right. It's time for the show. 
So yes. without further ado, I guess we uh, jump to our first article today, which is that distrustful yes, U.S. allies have forced the spy agency to back down in encryption fight. Yes, we. Yes, this they is have. This an interesting development that I'm not sure we would have seen even just like a decade ago. Uh, speaking of a decade ago, there will be a point in this article where we get to um, a previous instance of where the NSA was involved in setting crypto protocols which were later found to or, or suspected to have backdoors in it. And so that's the basis of this objection, I believe. Um, so this is from Reuters. And they say, an international group of cryptography experts has forced the U.S. National Security Agency to back down over two data encryption techniques it wanted set as a global industry standard, reflecting deep mistrust among close U.S. allies. So uh, ba- basically the NSA is saying, hey, listen, there's two, there's two encryption techniques that we would like to be set as glo- global industry standards because they want to get it put into um, uh, U- U.S. devices. And the way to do that is go through ISO, which is se- uh, configure, uh, associated with ANSI. Now, ISO and ANSI, most people should be familiar with, but we'll, we'll get more into them recent, uh, further down. In interviews and emails seen by Reuters, academic and industry experts from countries including Germany, Japan, and Israel worried that the U.S. electronic spy agency was pushing the new techniques not because they were good encryption tools, because it knew how to break them. Now, earlier on, they say deep mistrust among close U.S. allies. Germany, Israel, and Japan are pretty good allies of the U.S. Yeah, definitely. And and so for them to publicly come out and say, hey, listen, we're worried about this. Yeah, that's not very diplomatic. But that's not a criticism. That's just a comment. Right. A number (coughs) – pardon, I got some kind of bug. Don't die on me now, Dan. We've just got you back. I was surrounded by people coughing. A number of them voiced their distrust in emails to one another, seen by Reuters, and in written comments that are part of the process. The suspicions stem largely from internal NSA documents disclosed by Snowden that showed the agency had previously plotted to manipulate standards and promote technology it could penetrate. Budget documents, for example, sought funding to insert vulnerabilities into commercial encryption systems. That's a quote. So... We we saw some some of this in the original Snowden stuff. We got to assume that it, it, it was correct, and that's not just crap that someone's trying to force feed us. But yeah, the NSA, which does not confirm the authenticity of any Snowden documents, told Reuters it developed the new encryption tools to protect sensitive U.S. government computer and communications equipment without requiring a lot of computer processing power. So that's interesting. So. The, these new protocols, which we'll name later, don't require a lot of computer processing power. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad, because tradi- what we always hear about now is that if you need to perform a lot of um, operations in order to de- decrypt it, it makes it more difficult to do. So, right. But then, how is the, sure. the balance, the trade-off? You know, are yeah. they thinking of embedded mm-hmm. devices, or just being able to have ubiquitous, but they don't have to have onerous constraints there? Both. They're thinking about hardware and software. So they have two algorithms, spec and Simon encryption is how they refer to it. Okay. We'll get in, in there. So now the article jumps back to talk about the dual electric, elliptic curve. <laughs> Say that a few more so, times. You can do it. I'll try. So background. ISO, an independent organization with delegations from 162 member countries, sets standards on everything from medical packaging to road signs. Its working groups can spend years picking best practices and technologies for an ISO seal of approval. So they have voted twice to lay the multi-stage process of the approval. In oral and written statements, opponents cited the lack of peer-reviewed publication by the creators, the absence of industry adoption or a clear need for new ciphers, and the partial success of academics in showing their weaknesses. Okay, going back over that, peer-reviewed is important. And anything 
scientific. It is very important. Uh, industry hasn't adopted them, but then this may be a chicken and the egg thing. NSA wants these to become industry standards so then they can require people to use them. And the partial success of academics in showing their weaknesses. So partial success is sort of a telling sign if this stuff hasn't even been out very long. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, and by long, that that's a relative term. So skipping down again, ISO's approval of dual EC, elliptical curve, we're jumping back to this, was considered a success inside the agency, according to documents passed by Snowden to the founders of the online news site, The Intercept, which made them available to Reuters. The documents said the agency guided the dual EC proposal through four ISO meetings until it emerged as a standard. So I can't remember what year this was, but in 2007, mathematics in private industry showed that dual EC could hide a backdoor, theoretically enabling the NSA to eavesdrop without detection. Hey, that's a fun thought, isn't it? That's very good. And after the Snowden leaks, Reuters reported that the U.S. government had paid security company RSA $10 million to include dual EC in a software development kit that was used by programmers around the world. It must have been worth a lot of money. Ooh, yeah, no kidding. That's a, that's a lot of grease in the wheels going on for $10 million. So, so maybe, you know, thinking pessimistic, yes. pessimistically about it, you can say that NSA really believed in these and they wanted it to be promoted and used. They're trying to make it easy for people to have adoption so that they could have good security. Yeah, right. Or, yeah, yeah. So... When the United States first introduced Simon and Speck as a proposed ISO standard in 2014, so that's three years ago, experts from several countries expressed reservations. Some delegates had no objection. Uh, Chris Mitchell, a member of the British delegation, said he supported Simon and Speck, noting that no one has succeeded in breaking the algorithms. He acknowledged, though, that after the dual EC revelations, trust, particularly for U.S. Government participants in standardization is now non-existent. Have to also point out, U.S. and British uh, secret services are pretty cozy with each other. Yes, they are. So, take that with a grain of salt. Now, a German delegation uh, subsequently sent an email seeking support from dozens of cryptographers. He wrote that all seven German experts were very concerned about Simon and Speck. Quote, how can we expect companies and citizens to use security algorithms from ISO standards if those algorithms come from a source that has been comp- that has compromised security-related ISO standards just a few years ago? Valid point. Yeah, right. So, um, now, the last three paragraphs were, were what well, four paragraphs were interesting only from a geography point of view for me. So... Uh, such views helped Simon and Speck again, Delicate said, but the Americans kept pushing. And on October 26th in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, a majority of individual delegates approved the techniques, moving them up to a country by country vote. But there, the proposal fell one short, one vote short of the two thirds majority. And then finally, at a meeting in March 2017 in Hamilton, New Zealand, which I've been to. It was just, it's not that far north of Wellington. Beautiful town. Why they held it there, I don't know. Maybe it was at Lincoln University. Uh, I'm just intrigued as to why it was held in Hamilton, New Zealand. Yeah, that is kind of strange. The Americans distributed a 22-page explanation of design and summary of attempts to break them. And this is a sort of paper that formed part of what delegates had been seeking since 2014. That's a long time coming. That's a, you know, they spent three years before they came out with the design. Why the design and summary wasn't given in the first place. Yeah, it sounds like that was a little premature. If you're, tra- if you're trying to push something, give us that design and summary so people can evaluate it properly. So, Simon and Spect aimed respectively at hardware and software. Each have robust versions and more lightweight variants. 
The Americans agreed in Hamilton to compromise and drop the most lightweight versions. Opponents saw that as a major, if partial, victory, and it paved the way to compromise. In another nation-by-nation poll last month, the sturdiest versions advanced to the final stage of the approval process, again by a single vote, with Japan, Israel, and Germany remaining opposed. A final vote takes place in February. Interesting. So there'll be more to come on this, then. It doesn't mean people have to adopt it. Right, right. It just means that it's maybe becoming, it will. It's, and it it's might, becoming a standard. Yeah. And it may, then we may see more use of it downstream. It does kind of sound like a fancy brand, Simon and Speck. So that's all I can yeah. think of. Can, can, you think, can, can you say Simon and Speck without thinking Simon and Schuster? No, it's pretty hard. No, de- definitely not. Um, uh, it's got interesting names for encryption schemes. A little, I wonder where it came from. Yeah, maybe they're trying to go for the more human-friendly instead of uh, you know hard to pronounce or overly mathematical. I'm sure these things expand to you know mean something else, um, but I don't know. That. They, they, they may just be code words that they came up with in the early stages, and that's why it's that's a good point. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, we'll have to follow up well, here on we'll, the TechSnap program. I'm sure we'll talk about it more in February. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see because, uh, as was mentioned in the article, they said. Does industry need it? Does industry want it? And it'll be interesting to see how these might be better or worse than existing encryption techniques. Yeah, right. Do they really come through on that um, You know, mm-hmm. low horsepower needed to get these to work and still be secure? Mm-hmm. Does industry still have trust for these, even though the sketchy origin? Interesting. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, if this whole discussion has made you a little uncomfortable, you probably aren't ready to trust just any old cloud or or running your you know running your precious software somewhere that isn't secure so we've got the solution for you that's go get your own hardware don't just run your stuff on someone else's computer no get yourself some of the finest servers money can buy from our partner over at ixsystems.com head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap there you'll find the premier hardware retailer for open source software you'll also find a great white paper for it's a guide to buying that hardware so whether you, you read that whether you just call them up which i really recommend you'll find that ix systems has a just a great staff of super talented sales engineers ready to help you buy whatever it is you need to power power your small business or, or your enterprise. They've got incredible partners with people like Intel and their amazing Intel processors. They know how to get the supplies you need. They'll make sure that it's the right motherboard. You've got the right processors with the right flags and features enabled so that your workloads will perform the absolute best. You don't have to necessarily be an expert, whether you are an expert or just you're just getting started and buying some of your first servers. IX can help you. They have a ton of expertise. They've been in the industry for years. They really know what they're doing. Just take a look at some of the people they work with, big names like Sony, Evernote, NASA, UC Berkeley, whether it's big research institutions, big government institutions, or just, you know, regular private business, people like Splunk or LinkedIn, people with big data needs. That's where some of their premium systems, things like TrueRack or TrueNAS come in. That's for like, oh, so much storage. So if you really are thinking, you know, maybe you're upgrading your your SAN system you're sick and tired of vendor lock-in or just having to work with these big, unfortunate names that don't have the kind of service and support that you you know, really feel like you deserve, well, head on over to IX Systems. They've got white glove service. They'll make sure that everything is ready to go. Let's say you buy a new server from them, right? Well, they know that hard drives are most likely to fail within the first couple of days, so they're going to have burned those hard drives in, burned the system, and made sure that it's not going to fail the second you boot it up in the data center. They'll also happily customize the software, make it work just how you need it, install your OS, configure some applications, run software setup for you. That way, it gets shipped to the data center, gets racked up, turned on, it's ready to join your fleet. It really, it just couldn't be easier. And maybe you don't even, maybe you don't even need that. Maybe you just, you've been listening to Dan, and so you know you need to get serious about your backups. If that's the case, pick up a FreeNAS Mini. It's a totally worthwhile investment. It'll last you for years, and you can finally just consider this problem solved. Maybe, you know, maybe buy one for yourself, get some for some uh, family member, set those two to replicate between them, boom, done. You've got your offsite backup, you've got your local backup. I think you're going to be pretty good. If you don't believe me, and you don't, you're like, well, who is this IX? Who are these IX systems people? Not only are they great, but they're huge members of the community. Go check out their blog. They've always got tons of great stuff on the blog telling you about the things they've been doing. Stuff like VBSDCon 2017. 
BSD at work. Here's like a summary. They got their conference summary. They were there. They're always at a ton of these great conferences, whether it's BSD conventions, Linux conventions, or just, you know, working with the OpenZFS community. And don't miss, if you're already on their blog, make sure you look at all the posts tagged hashtag server envy because, oh boy, you will be envious. They build some beautiful systems. This is a great way to check them out. That and, uh, you know, you can go follow them on, on Twitter, Facebook, all the social media. So thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so what do you have for us next today? Another day, another breach. No. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more breaches that go on that never make the news. Yes, I'm sure. And, but at least some do, and that uh, that helps here us here at the TechSnap program. And I hope I'm never involved with, with one because, oh, in this case, it's again uh, an example of someone who's gone and configured something, gotten it already, and sadly, they haven't really secured anything at all. Um, in this case, it's uh, Viacom, and it's on AWS S3. Um, I've seen, uh, I saw a question to, this came to us from the subreddit on um, Reddit, but I saw a question in there saying, who's responsible for securing these servers? Is it Amazon or is it the people that rent them? And I feel it's securely in the hands of, uh, Viacom, uh, sorry, whoever rents it, um, it's like saying I've rented a car from Hertz and if you're in a car accident, do you sue Hertz? No. It's the person who's driving the car. Right. I mean, there uh, may be some minimal, you know, like Amazon is should should have to provide you the tools to be able to secure it according to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to make that possible. But I, th- that is well, definitely in place. And so it's on the person managing it. You, from what I remember, I had uh, a uh, Microsoft Azure instance, and I'm sure that AWS is not much different, where I had to open up holes in order to get to the web server. You know, it wasn't open by default. And I can't imagine that this is all open by default. You've got to poke the holes in there, and they just they haven't done it. Yeah. They haven't secured it. Yes, anyway. Definitely. So what did they give? What, did, what, what was found here? Well, Media Monster Viacom has been caught with its security trousers down. Researchers found a wide-open, public-facing, misconfigured AWS AWS S3 bucket contained pretty much everything a hacker would need to take down the company's IT systems. So, the contents of the repository appears to be nothing less than either the primary or backup configuration of Viacom's IT infrastructure. The Amazon-hosted bucket could be accessed by anyone stumbling upon it, and it contained the passwords and manifests for Viacom servers, as well as the access key and private key for the corporation's AWS account. Now, this bit is interesting. They did encrypt some of the data, but that wouldn't be an issue because the bucket also contained the necessary decryption keys. Yikes. Oh, man. Uh, Stored uh, right next to each other? Yes. Come on. Basically, a hacker had a hacker found this piece before Vickery did. Vickery's the person that found it. They would have all had they would have had all the tools they needed to fish customers for their account details, spin up server instances that would accurately mimic Viacom's legitimate systems for use as a botnet or other nefarious purposes or provide invaluable information to allow hackers to take a troll trawl through Viacom's own networks. Yeah. Oh. Now, now, who is Viacom? Perhaps you've not heard of them, but perhaps you've heard of these companies. Viacom is the sixth largest media conglomerate on the planet, controlling Paramount Pictures, you've heard of them. Yes, I have. MTV, MTV, Comedy Central and Nickelodeon and more. So, as it says here, that's a very juicy target indeed, and a successful hack would have seriously damaged the company as customers. Yeah. Viacom has yet to reply to requests for comment. Hmm, yeah. That's a shame. Yep. Uh, 
This is the latest in a long line of open S3 buckets found by UpGuard. Thanks to Vickery's current crusade against the practice, a simple script searches for open S3 buckets, and then he and his team take a poke around for interesting stuff. If security shops are doing this, then hackers are certainly following suit as well. Oh, once Viacom became aware that information on a server, including technical information, but no employee or customer information was publicly accessible, they rectified the situation. We have analyzed the data in question to determine there is no material impact. Okay. Well, that's good, at least. <laughs> Hopefully this you know, sent a scare through some of the people in their uh, IT and security departments, because yikes. That's uh, that that's a pretty big hole. That's a really big hole, and it's just, every everything was up there. Yeah, and that just shows like not only is it like you know oh no well the it was misconfigured but it it speaks to me that like there's process that's either missing or gone wrong here. Um, that that thing you know that that happens when people don't have process when they're moving too fast or just trying to get things done and don't have the kinds of oversight or testing or you know outside observability that you would hope, especially for a uh, big company like Viacom. I wonder if it was outsourced to someone. I'm wondering if it was a bunch of uh, a, a rock star team that they brought in. Rock star. Mm. <laughs> rock star? Yeah. Right. Uh, that's a good question, a.k.a. cutting corners. All right, well, one, yeah. another example of this. Hopefully we won't see too many more. I really hope people start to you know learn that this is something to take seriously. You need to do audits. You need to make sure that you have the right kind of security practices. And you have competent people who understand the security primitives of whatever platform that you're using. Speaking of platforms, uh, maybe you're like, well, I don't really want to use S3, but I still need somewhere to store my files. Our next sponsor has just launched a solution for you. That's right. It's DigitalOcean.com. And they've just introduced Spaces, a beautifully simple and scalable object storage service. So uh, head on over to DigitalOcean.com. You can learn more about Spaces or the rest of their awesome product line. DigitalOcean has cloud computing designed for developers. Part of that is that they keep it super simple. You can use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's just one word, a little lowercase, SNAPOcean. There, you can get started in less than 55 seconds. You can spin yourself up a brand new cloud VPS and start playing with it and see what I'm talking about. Whether you're using their API or you're using their incredible dashboard, you'll really see that it's it's about the simplest, cleanest, most intuitive way to get started in this world that you've ever seen. Compare that to some of their competitors and you will be blown away. You pretty much have all the same powers, especially if you leverage the API. It's all there. You can access it, but it's a sane, clean design. You don't have to pull your hair out. You don't have to go crazy. It just works. That's that's one of the things I love about DigitalOcean. When you use our promo code, SNAPOcean, that'll get you a $10 credit. Wait till you find out, too, that DigitalOcean has some of the best prices around. Yeah, that's that's really what sets them apart as well. They've got simple, transparent pricing, and it comes in both monthly and hourly. So the, the cheapest droplet here, $5 a month. That means with that $10 credit, you're going to get two months for free. If you're anything like me, you'll be suckered in. And at that price range, how can you afford not to? Whether you need to, you know, host your own IRC bouncer, you want to run your own VPN service, or you just want, you know, an always-on box running in the cloud with great transit, incredible peering. They've got 40 gigabit E right to the hypervisor, and it's all SSD storage. Plus, they've got attachable block storage, private networking that you don't pay for, networking between two droplets in the same data center, and they're always adding tons of great new features, stuff like cloud firewalls. That's going to help you make sure that you stay secure, even if you're not an IP tables expert. And they've got monitoring, load balancers, all the stuff you've come to expect from any of their competitors, but all at much more reasonable prices, much simpler, and hey, you've got a $10 promo code. So, I mean, what excuse do you have to not get started? And on top of all of that, DO are great community members. They take awesome submissions from the DO community, have real editors, and turn that into some of the best documentation on the internet. So go on over there, explore their community, and you'll see a ton of great articles like How Thou Canst Maketh a Fine Program in Fortran. That's a language that comes up a time or two here on the TechSnap program. So look, DigitalOcean, they're, they're one of us. They get it. That's why we're so thankful for DigitalOcean sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so now that I've got uh, got everything moved from S3 to uh, DigitalOcean Spaces, 
we have time to cover our next story, which is more about Equifax, of course. Looks like they've been sending customers straight into a hacker's trap for weeks. I love this dramatic hacker image over at Raw Story. Yeah, it's it's not actually uh, um, a hacker's trap, but it could have been. Uh, we'll get to that. After the data breach was revealed earlier, earlier this month, Equifax established the domain www.equifaxsecurity2017.com. And when they did this, I remember we mentioned it and someone else mentioned it. I think we mentioned it because someone else mentioned it. But why are you putting it on another domain? Put it under Equifax.com. Like, put it under security2017.equifax.com. Keep it under your own domain. Don't put it somewhere else because then that, that sort of allows people to create other spoof domains that look like it, like changing a zero to a one, sorry, a zero to an O or a one to an I, something like that. Especially when it has such a confusing and long name anyway. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you just reorder them slightly sure. done. Yep. So on Wednesday, a user reached out to Equifax on Twitter asking for assistance. The responding tweet sent the user to www.securityequifax2017.com. So what they've done there is they've swapped around the two words, Equifax and security. So instead of going to the real site, which is Equifax Security, they went to Security Equifax. It is, an imp- it is an imposter site designed to look like the Equifax splash page. Now, it turns out that this was set up by a white hat um, developer called Nick Sweeting, and it's a demonstration of popular f- phishing techniques. But anyone could have set that up. It could have been horrible. But anyway. The company deleted the erroneous tweet, but a quick scan of their Twitter feed showed that they have sent multiple customers to the phony site. Those tweets have been deleted as well. So Nick Sweeting said, I made the site because Equifax made a huge mistake by using a domain that doesn't have any trust attached to it, as opposed to hosting it on Equifax.com, Sweeting told The Verge. It makes it ridiculously easy for scammers to come in and build clones. They can buy out dozens of domains and typo squat to get people to type in their info. And by typo squat, that, you know... When you mistype a domain name and you go to somewhere else that sort of looks like the one you thought you're at, but you're not really quite, yeah, yeah, that's super easy to do. Even you know, even if you know what you're doing on the internet, uh, you just mix it up a little bit, hit the yep. wrong thing on a keyboard, done. Yep, and it looks like you're there. So, <sighs> yeah. Uh, did you see in the news that the Equifax CEO resigned today? Yeah, that uh, I believe also their chief uh, information officer and chief security yes, officer. So, yes, uh, heads yes, have yes. rolled a bit. Uh, have now to be fair, they're getting good golden parachutes out of yes, this. Yes, they are. Right, it's not. I'm like sure that. they will have huge payouts. Goodbye, out the door you go. Yep, and we'll surely go on to do other things at other companies. Uh, you know, once a little of this dust has settled, so. Yeah, well. And like on one hand you're like, well, that kind of feels like accountability, but you wonder like are there, you know, is anything actually are they just going to bring in a new person? Are they really going to reform things down the chain at the individual level where some of these mistakes have been made? I mean, you know, sometimes it can be a problem with leadership at the top, but sometimes it's also any leadership in the middle or just lack of, you know, mm. proctor pra- pra- proper protocols uh and it takes more than just the man at the top leaving for that to get fixed. It'd be interesting to see where all the mistakes were, whether it was lower down or higher up or yeah, what. But right. yeah, it seems like at this point you almost need like a you know independent audit to come in, assess what some of the problems were, have a third party report on it. Yeah. <sighs> interesting. All right. Well, that's a, that's on that sad note. We must go to our next and final sponsor this evening, which is not sad at all because it's our friends over at Ting. Ting is mobile. That makes sense. It really is a smarter way to do mobile. And when you see that the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So to get started with Ting, go to techsnap.ting.com. That'll get you started with a $25 service credit. 
Yeah, that's right, my friends. $25 service credit. And you know what I said about the, the average price? That means you're going to probably more than your first month's bill with Ting. Boom. Done. Covered. Plus, just going over to the rates page, they make it super simple. And this is why I love Ting. So not only is it just pay for what you use, each line only costs $6 a month. So however many lines you have, $6 each, pretty simple pricing. And this chart on this rates page, it's beautiful. It's the best. It's the clearest. It's the easiest way to like actually estimate what your monthly bill might be I've ever seen, I think, in any service ever. Um, that's what that's what's different about Ting. They don't have to spend all this time having to build new towers or try to figure out how to become the next giant media conglomerate or how to use super cookies to track you and sell that to advertisers. They're not interested in that. They just want to sell you incredible phone service and provide great customer service. So call them up. You'll talk to a real human or because they have an incredible dashboard and a super powerful app, you can like anything you need to do, add lines, disconnect lines, change your account, update address, whatever it is, you can do it right there in the app. So you don't have to talk to a human if you don't want to. I know sometimes that can be scary. So back to these prices here. $6 a line. That's how it gets started. Then however many minutes you use, right? So I don't use any minutes because I just use data. And I don't use any text messages because I just use data. So it's just pretty much how much data you pay. And when, you know, if you only use about a gig a month, and usually if you're on Wi-Fi a lot, you can stay just a little under there, at least for me, your monthly bill would be a whopping $22. That That is a phone bill I think I can afford. So go get started at techsnap.ting.com. That lets you them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. I know I sure do. And that'll help you start saving on your phone bill today with Ting. Thanks, Ting. All righty then. Uh, okay, so we've got one more topic for the main segment of today's show. It's kind of a big one we today. We do. Yeah. Uh, this one was interesting. I was kind of surprised to see it there. Not not a vulnerability we've uh, you know hasn't it doesn't always it kind of breaks the mold of today's show but I'm I'm glad it does. Yep. So the title makes you think that the spy tool is hiding as WhatsApp or Skype, but it's a little more subtle than that. Yes. And and it is very much targeted. This is not something that the average person would experience or encounter. So it takes a little while to get to the point. Please bear with me. Legitimate downloads of popular software, including WhatsApp, Skype, and VLC player, are allegedly being hacked at an internet service provider level to spread an advanced form of surveillance known as FinFisher. FinFisher is sold to global governments and intelligence agencies and can be used to snoop on webcam feeds, keystrokes, microphones, and web browsing. Documents previously published by WikiLeaks and indicate that one such tool called FinFly ISP may be linked to the case. The digital surveillance tools are peddled by an international firm called Gamma Group and have in the past been sold to repressive regimes including Bahrain, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. In March this year, the company attended a security conference sponsored by the UK Home Office. Hmm. This week, this week, Experts from cybersecurity firm Esset claimed that the new FinFisher variants had been discovered in seven countries, two of which were being targeted by man-in-the-middle attacks at an ISP level, packaging real downloads with spyware. So basically, it's a legitimate software that you're downloading, but bundled in in with it is the malware. When a target of surveillance was downloading the software, they would be silently redirected to a version infected with FinFisher research found. When downloaded, the software would install as normal, but Asset found it would also be covertly bundled with the surveillance tool. The stealthy infection process was described as being invisible to the naked eye. Now, this is unprecedented. The deployment of the ISP-level man-in-the-middle attack technique mentioned in the leaked documents has never been revealed until now, the researchers said in their analysis. If confirmed, these Finn Fisher campaigns would represent a sophisticated and stealthy operation project unprecedented in its combinations, combination of methods and reach. It remains unknown who's behind the fresh hacking campaigns, but Finn Fisher is almost exclusively tailored, tailored to government police or intelligence agency use. Ooh. 
So they're not going to be after you and me. They're after much bigger fish. Surprisingly, Gamma Group did not immediately respond to a request for comment from IB Times UK. This is not the first time that the company, which has offices in Europe, has been leaked, linked, linked to questionable business practices. In 2013, tech firm Mozilla sent it a cease and desist letter after its software was caught posing as a version of its Firefox browser. Wow, that's evil. That is evil. We cannot abide a software company using our name to disguise online surveillance tools that can be, and in several cases actually have been, used by Gamma's customers to violate citizens' human rights and online privacy, it complained in a blog post. So, early this year, Reporters Without Borders branded Gamma Group as one of the corporate enemies of the internet in an annual report. Wow. These, These creepy and invasive spyware can also be spread via more traditional means, malicious email attachments, for example. Back in 2011, it emerged that Gamma International, UK subsidiary, was selling a malware Trojan disguised as an update for iTunes, Apple iTunes Media Player. Before being patched, the gaping vulnerability had been exploited for approximately three years, found security journalist Brian Krebs at the time. This is just nasty. It, it requires collusion or cooperation or subversion, su- subverting the ISP security. More likely, I think they're working in cahoots with the ISP. Uh, I also note that the seven companies are specifically not named in this article, but, you know, this is no, pretty nasty. No, they're not. Uh, I think they mentioned that. I, I, I think they actually mentioned that part. Uh, the seven countries were not named for security reasons, as it said. WhatsApp and VLC player did not respond to requests for comment by the time of publication. So, yeah, this is, this is, should not be surprising, but it is shocking. Yeah, it is shocking that that level of, you know, it just that that could be so insidiously placed in so many locations and that they've done such a good job and have such a long history and yet it's not talked about very much. And so we've seen a little bit, like as we talked about there with the Mozilla comments, there's been some criticism in the past, but boy, talk about just doing whatever you can to make a buck, right? Yeah, I know. Ethically, this I can see why they might be sort of self-justifying why this works but right mm. and then you can see right like then there's a you know governments or other agencies out there and they're like hey we would we'll pay for this software or we need this existing so like it's at the market level it's mm-hmm. hard to fault the company for being like well there was a there was a place in the market for us we're gonna meet that need uh so yep. it's really a problem at multiple levels <sighs> so all the more reason to use secure ways of you know getting software make sure if you can you can verify signatures and other means and be careful yeah that's what i was thinking of verify the signatures yikes all right well uh that does it for the main segment today stay stay tuned we'll be right back with the feedback And now it's time for the feedback, our favorite spot in the show, because we get to hear from you, our wonderful audience. First up today, we've got a letter from Gary writing about stored passwords. He writes, Hi guys, I understand the importance of websites slash servers storing our passwords in a hashed format, and certainly not in plain text. Now, I now own an Amazon Fire TV stick, which, because I ordered it directly from Amazon and not in a high street store, came with my account already signed in. And so it had, you know, had the watch list, history, etc. They're all there. How did they do this? I assume a big company like Amazon are storing my passwords correctly, but am I missing something obvious? Please give me your opinion of this, even if it is that I'm just being daft and not seeing something obvious, or is it that currently it is an unknown Amazon thing? Thanks and regards, Gary Ford. Thanks, Gary. Well, Dan, what do you think of Gary's question here? I think it's pretty safe to say they're not storing the password on the device. I agree. I would hope so. I, I, I wouldn't design it that way. Um, I think it's much more likely 
that the device is associated with your account. And I'll bet there's some sort of configuration that you have to do. Yeah, I was thinking, but if someone stole it, can they still use it? I don't know. Right. I I mean, probably. I suppose they are trusting that that it would be delivered. I mean, if if there was no activation whatsoever, that it came on already set up, it does seem like maybe the device has a unique, you know, unique hardware ID that they pair with, or they, um, you know, associate some sort of token-based access to your account and then put a key on that device before it's shipped to you. I don't know if they have other provisions that make it, you know, does that key expire in a certain amount of time, and then you have to make sure that after you get it, you've re-authenticated at some point. That, I'm not sure. I don't actually own one of these devices myself. Um, I don't know, and it is interesting. I did did do some searching, but didn't find a clear explanation. Yeah. And there's some hardware, factory hardware resets that I didn't look at, but I'm I'm positive that your password is not contained on this device. Yeah. It would be interesting to see, too, like um, if there's any sort of aftermarket. Are you able to take this device and, say, sell it mm-hmm. to someone else? And are they able to, like, this factory reset, and then yeah. they have to sign in again? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good I, question, Gary. I, I imagine it's it's like any let's use a browser session analogy. You type your username and password into the browser, but it's not stored in the browser. It, it's transmitted to the back end, then hashed and compared to the hash that they have there. And if it matches, they say, Yes, here's a token. You can use it in your browser and that will identify you to us. Right. So there's pro- they've probably pre installed a token in there or the hardware device, uh, pardon me. The hardware device ID is associated with your account, so when it when it comes in, it says, "Oh yeah, this is for Gary," so we know how to use it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, either of those two, they seem like very plausible things. Hey, if anyone else in the audience uh, has mm. one of these devices, uh, we'd love to hear your experience. Maybe you know a little bit more than we do about this, and can give Gary a solid answer. So please write in if you do. Okay, so we just have one other piece of feedback today, and that's over. In the Twitterverse, Goran J at uh, Joel Bowl writes to at TechSnapDan. Hey, Dan, what is a good and inexpensive tape backup drive for LTO tapes? What works for you best? Thanks. I'm just going to turn this right over to you because it's dressed right to you and you are the tape master of the show. For a long time, my favorite tape drive was the DLT 7000 but it only stores a maximum of about 80 gig compressed. Nowadays, my typical monthly backup is about 800 to 900 gig. So that's 10 or 11 tapes. And I was running out of space and time. Fortunately, uh, someone gave me an LT04 tape library, which two drives in it. You're not telling me how much you're backing up. But if you're only backing up 80 gig or less in a month full, I would try an LTO, uh, sorry, a DLT 7000. I found them to be very reliable. They lasted for years. Um, I used to wind up buying several on eBay and testing them out and seeing if they worked and comparing comparing them to each other. Say, like, if three tapes were all bad in all three drives, either it was the tape or it was all the drives are bad. More likely it's the tape that's bad. But if you have five tapes and all of them are good in two drives and not good in another drive, that other drive is probably suspect. So you can either clean it or toss it out. But on eBay, you can probably pick up secondhand tape drives at a reasonable price. Reasonable being subjective, I know. But um, And new I used to buy used DLT 7000. I had good success with it because I tested them first to make sure that they were reliable. Um, but new DLT, sorry, new LTO4 is not too bad. I cannot remember the prices, but when I was last looking, um, I said, oh, yeah, I might as well buy new. Oh, so, nice. Uh, yeah, try that. Uh, get back to us and let us know how much you're trying to back up and stuff like that. Maybe we can help you out more. But that's about all I know at the moment. I I have used older technologies like uh, the DDS stuff. Don't use DDS. It's like very, very thin 
uh, type stuff. Uh, it's almost like uh, the mini cassettes that, that people used to record uh, dictation on. Oh, really? Uh, wow. And, and yeah, the, the, the units were maybe two to two and a half inches wide and maybe an inch and a half high. And the tape was only maybe 10 mil wide. Not very, not very thick at all. Not very wide at all. Probably might have only been five mil, but yeah, it, it was delicate and it, it got jammed up all the time. But I found uh, DLT very solid. Um, it was very reliable for me, and I still have uh, some DLT seven thousand tape drives in the rack behind me, uh, and I have a lot of backups on DLT. But LT4, LTO4 is what I'm doing now, mainly because that's what I was given. If someone gave me a newer tape drive and they got it sitting around and it's a tape library, you know. You would gladly accept it. I, I can gladly accept it. Uh, so generous of you. Awesome. All right. Well, hopefully uh, hopefully that provides a good answer. If anyone else has great tape things or just other feedback, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There you can send us feedback or textsnap.reddit.com and we're both available on Twitter. That's it for today's feedback. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the roundup. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's the roundup. We didn't have enough time for these to be main segment stories, but they're still super interesting. They're homework for you. They're homework for us. So with no further ado, let's jump right in. First over at blackhat.com. How to hack a turned off computer or running unsigned code in the Intel management engine. I'm scared already, Dan. What's going on here? This is a talk coming up in December in uh, in London. Um, Basically, they're talking about the Intel management engine which is a proprietary technology that consists of a mini-controller integrated into the platform controller hub with a set of built-in peripherals. And this PCH carries almost all the communications between the processor and external devices and blah, 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 blah. But they've found a way of making it work, accessing it when the main system is turned off. I imagine it's similar to IPMI where the IPMI module is still active when the main unit is powered off and they found a way to access it and do things and um you know um interesting. Yeah. Basically you one one would assume that all of this stuff is firewalled off and you have to be inside it, uh, the the network in order to get to it. Yes. Um, right. You never know. You and never that's know. The whole scary part about it, right, is like, yeah, if you're, uh, you know, an enterprise or you need to be able to do this so that if your remote server fails, you can restore it. Those are all totally legitimate. But when you just don't know what the capabilities are and you can't audit it, that's when it gets yep. scary. And the thing is, they can run your own code on ME on this management engine. You can install your own code and get it to. So basically, you're basically rooting the box. Yeah, but at a jailbreaking up. Yeah, but at the like lowest level possible. Good luck getting rid of it by reformatting there, folks. Yeah, no. Not going to happen. Ooh, okay. Ah. So, on to the next story. Passwords for 540,000 car tracking devices leaked online. That's a lot of cars. Yes. And again, it was a wide open, public facing, misconfigured Amazon Web Server, AWS S3 cloud storage bucket containing a cache belonging to an SVR. It's belonging to SVR. This this is SVR tracking. Um, The the SVR tracking service allows its customers to track their vehicles in real time by attaching a physical tracking device to vehicles in a discrete location so their customers can monitor and recover them in case their vehicles are stolen. However, what was grabbed in this thing was email addresses, passwords, as well as users' vehicle data like VIN, IME numbers of the GPS devices, and etc. And the leaked passwords are stored using SHA-1, a 20-year-old weak cryptographic hash function. I wonder how many rainbow tables exist for that. Yeah. 
The leak database also exposed 339 logs that contained photographs and data about vehicle status and maintenance records, but I'm not sure, and details on the 427 dealerships that use SVR tracking services. Hmm. SVR's car tracking device monitors a vehicle everywhere for the past 120 days, along with access to SVR users' login credentials could both track a vehicle in real-time and provide a detailed log of every location the vehicle is visited using any internet-connected device like a laptop, a desktop, a mobile phone, or a tablet. Eventually, the attacker could outright steal the vehicle or even rob a home when they know that the car owners is when the car's owner is out. Well, yeah, that's a little sensationalist, but yeah. Patch your buckets. Holy crap. Yeah. I just want to know where these IT departments are coming from and how much concern they're giving to real information that is sensitive. Have these people gone through any kind of decent security training? Do they have anyone in security in their group? Yeah, right. Does their organization so. have that sort of thing? Or are they just uh, you know throwing stuff together, putting stuff on S3 because it's real easy, and then uh, walking away? Yep. Yikes. All right. Well, here's another spectacular failure. Looks like the Adobe security team accidentally posted a private PGP key on their blog. And I- and I can sort of see how this would happen. I can sort of see how this would happen. Now, what happened here is the post gave the public and the private key for the Adobe Incident Response Team. But I can see how this would happen if it wasn't properly reviewed before being posted. Someone just said, Hey, listen, I want to put the private key over here. Uh, how do I get that? Where do, where do I post it? And someone said, oh, you get it there. You go in there. You click there and do that. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was someone that's not technically familiar with PGP keys writing this blog post and just copying, pasting it in. And I'm sure it wasn't reviewed before it was posted, but it certainly should have been. Because anyone who knew what PGP keys were would have said, don't post that. I wonder what the repercussions are and how they're going to recover from this. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they, you know, they put out a new public key pretty quick. They took the the old one down, uh, but you know, how much previously encrypted communication is now sitting around, maybe potentially vulnerable to people who've seen this? I don't know. I don't know. You know, are these posted anywhere? Are the encrypted emails posted anywhere, or are they sent to directly to Adobe controlled channels? I'm not sure, but uh, whoops. Yeah. That would be uh, one of those things you're like, wait, wait, no, back, cancel. What have I done? I know, I know, I know. uh, Yeah, that's unfortunate. It does, you know, it ends up talking a lot about just how how it definitely could be easy to do. And a lot of the stuff, especially around, you know, PGP is not always intuitive, easy to use, or has the best UX. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see how this might happen Mm -hmm. as well. Especially if you're just trying Mm -hmm. to move fast, you've done it a thousand times. Whoops, you exported both of the keys. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. Moving right along then. Yes. That's unpleasant enough. We've got... More news about Apache Struts. This is uh, something we've talked about a lot more. I've gone from hearing about Struts basically never uh, to now all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, f- first of all, IB, IB Times, you have video that autoplays on your website. That's not nice. But also you have advertisements on here that autoplay. And when I pause them after five minutes, they start playing again. Yeah, and this that's is a really hard anno- website that, to look that's at. It's really, really annoying. If I if I pause something, it should stay paused. Anyway, back to the point. So, when the Equifax thing first came out, Equifax was blaming open source software, specifically open source software. They weren't saying we blame Apache Struts. They were saying we blame open source software software for this. Unfortunately, what they're trying to blame was something which had been patched before the 
break-in occurred, I think. I think I have my timeline right. Please correct me if someone knows otherwise. But the issue here is that they think that, again, it's kind of the title that they have here is slightly misleading. More than 3,000 organizations at risk of breach. Well, what they mean by that is more than 3,000 organizations could be at risk of breach because how they're getting that, they found a, a total of 3,054 organizations still using a vulnerable version of Apache Struts, a popular web application platform. So the vulnerability in question is was discovered in March of this year and was considered a zero day. Uh, but by Mar March 6th, a patch was available and could be applied by anyone using Apache Struts. March, April, May, June, July, August, September. So that's six months ago that, that this um, patch came out. And it is worth noting that uh, it is thought to believe that um, Equifax knew about the breach several months ago, uh, waited a while. Uh, some high-level people actually uh, sold stock uh, I think they also acquired uh, a company or set up a company in order to deal with the repercussions of this. Interesting. So that they, so that they could at least profit off the release of the news. Wow. Um, That's insidious. It's, it's just terrible. So anyway, um, if you're using Apache Struts or anything like that, know what you're doing. Patch it properly. I love this last sentence. Wayne Jackson, CEO of Sonotype, said in a statement, like people who accidentally bring home expired milk from the grocery store, companies that download and deploy known vulnerable open source components are simply not paying attention. Yep, yep, exactly that. I think I think that's not a lot of, you know, it's not always built into the workflow for a lot of companies um, no, nope. especially if you don't have like real concepts of application lifecycle, support, maintenance, that sort of thing, because it's very easy for like, oh, well, we made our minimum viable product, got rolled out, customers started using it, developers moved on, a new team supports it, and no one has ever taken the time to go back and look at, hey, what are we using? Are these up to date? Do we have a way to check that and audit it in any way? Ugh. We don't want to upgrade. Right, that because might break that things. requires retesting everything. Yes. And we don't have time to do that. We have all these other things we have to do. And if you don't have a great, you know, full, mm -hmm. full test suite or anything like that, then that makes it hard to do. Like, well, then we're just, we're just never going to. You're going to have a lot of time once there's a break. And... Yes, you will. Ah, very well put, Mr. Dan. All right, so it looks like we've just got uh, one, more, one more little item in our roundup today. Yes, we do. And that is... Facebook has relicensed React under the MIT license after developer backlash. I, I had not heard of React before this. I had not used it. I don't know anything about it. Do you? I do. Uh, I, okay. I have used it myself. Oh. Uh, so React is a, um, you know, a JavaScript. It, you could call it a framework, but really it's more of a library. Um, and it's, its job is to abstract the working with the DOM for you. So rather than like, uh. maybe you've used things like jQuery or Angular um, mm -hmm. React fits in that space. Uh, React does so with a sort of, at least when it came out, a novel way where it has a virtual DOM. Um, and so it has a, you know, in-memory representation of the DOM. You write components that then render to this virtual DOM. React then diffs the virtual DOM with the real DOM. Uh, and then it, that way it can determine like, oh, look, this virtual DOM has one less item in this list than the real one it then knows to go in batch updates almost like gpu style programming it will then go sync the virtual dom to the real dom um not only can you have like a lot of efficiency gains there because you can batch updates uh, and make sure that you aren't like trying to redraw the page a whole bunch all the time but you also get to write in a programming style where instead of having to manually account for all of these like okay well now i have to go since I lost one item, I have to go find that item in this list and then remove it and delete it. You just specify your whole list every time and React handles the diffing for you. That's hmm. the high-level overview anyway. Hmm. There's a whole ecosystem around it and there's tons of other frameworks and there's JSX and there's uh, you know, all, all sorts of other toolkits and frameworks to fit on top of it, but that's the core. Well, so, the issue was the licensing. Yes. Developers didn't like the fact that it came 
that the React license, which was known as the BSD Plus Patents license, was good. They did sorry, they didn't like that idea, and Facebook still believes in the BSD Plus Patents license, um, but it has failed to decisively convince this community. They say. So the licensing terms also earned the ire of the Apache Foundation, which took the drastic step of banning the library and all BSD plus patents license code from its projects. That's a big deal. Apache has a lot of software. Yes, they do. So the new license is the MIT license. Why they couldn't just go with a BSD license without the patents clause, I don't know. But there we go. Yeah, I've seen a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of coverage of this story in general. Um, the coverage I saw that I liked the most of the comments was that really the trouble that we got in for this whole thing was that Facebook brought up patents and software patents, uh, especially in the US, yeah. are just so broken that yep. it's just such a quagmire because they've ultimately ended up being at MIT and there's some like issue of uh, is there implicit grant of patents in the MIT license? It's not necessarily legally understood. Um, so it's we're largely now back to the normal open source standard of put your head in the sand, ignore software patents. We're just going to care about licensing um, because a lot of their competitors are already MIT, but they didn't bring up patents. And so we haven't heard a lot of complaints about patents. Um, we don't even know. Uh, it's not even clear, at least in anything I could find that Facebook even owns relevant patents to react. So there's a lot of qualms around like the past and their old license. And I can certainly understand that because there's a lot of people, especially startups nervous that they would not get bought by one of the Facebook's competitors if they couldn't, you know, if that company then could not sue Facebook without losing the ability to use react. But I really think it just comes Mm -hmm. down to software patents are broken. Facebook was trying to ease the pain of they do a lot of good open source work and they had a lot of pain and they were just trying to make it so that they could keep doing that without having to have a huge legal department to just always defend these fraudulent patent lawsuits. So it just sucks all around and we really need to do something about it. Fraudulent patent lawsuits are just a money grab by scum sucking people. I think it's just terrible. I think you're exactly right. Okay, so that's it for the roundup. Anything you want to say before we go and get out of here today? No. Nothing at all. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it was wonderful to have you back. I'm glad we've got got a full video show. I hope uh, everyone out there appreciates that as well. I know I do. And we appreciate you guys hanging out with us here on the Tech Snap program. This has been episode 338, broadcast live on September 26th, 2017. If you'd like to see more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archives of this show, the past generation, and a whole bunch of other wonderful content on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. You can also go to techsnap.reddit.com or you can find us both on Twitter. He's at techsnap underscore Dan and I'm at Wes Payne. Thank you very much as always for joining me, Mr. Dan. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.